I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. Today I'm delighted to welcome Sarah Longwell. Uh, she is publisher of TheBulwark.com, founder of Republicans for the Rule of Law and Republican Voters Against Trump. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You were telling me about the genesis of your project and some of the interesting findings from focus groups. What, what has most stood out that you can share with us? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, it depends on what we're talking about. But in terms of, um, you know, for, for our project, uh, Republican Voters Against Trump, I, I've spent the last couple of years thinking about, really, how do you beat Trump in 2020? Um, you know, and, and as a Republican myself and somebody who's done a lot of work in Republican circles for my entire career, I, I really, you know, after 2016, obviously had a lot of questions about what, what had happened to the party that I thought I knew. How was it that they had nominated and then elected uh, a guy like Donald Trump because it didn't seem to square with the Republican Party that I felt like I identified with and understood. And so um, I started doing focus groups uh, a couple of years ago with what I would characterize as reluctant Trump voters. Um, so this was always the sort of wing of the party that I thought, look, if you're going to re rebuild the Republican Party at some point um, and you're going to sort of you know, push Trumpism back out uh, and sort of root out the nationalist populist tendencies that seem to have taken hold of the party. You know, a lot of it is going to be um, built around the people who didn't want to vote for Trump, didn't like Trump, certainly didn't vote for him in a primary, um, but just couldn't get their heads around voting for Hillary Clinton. And so a lot of those people either ditched out and voted third party in 2016, or they held their nose and voted for Trump, mainly thinking he was never going to win. Um, and then, of course, he did, and, and he's, he's obviously captured the party more and more during his tenure, um, but there's always been this slice of the party that was never really on board with Trump, that always found him, uh, you know, to, to be a bad moral character, uh, to be, uh, you know, not a real Republican in many ways, certainly not a conservative. Um, and, and so those are the people I've been most interested in talking to, and, and most recently, uh, it's really been people uh, who rate Trump when, when we screen for the participants, the focus groups, a lot of the times who we talk to is there are people who voted for Trump in 2016, but they rate him as doing a very bad job, a somewhat bad or very bad job, because those are the people who are really persuadable in 2020. Um, and because the nominee isn't Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, um, it's sort of a generic Democrat like Joe Biden those voters are up for grabs. And I would say the most uh, interesting thing is that in the focus groups over the last few weeks, um, you know, I just did one last Thursday. I did one with, with a group of women in swing states, uh, all of whom voted for Trump in 16. And I would say of the eight, there was only one who was leaning toward actually voting for Trump again. Uh, the rest of them, there, was, there were three who were really pretty full on in Biden's camp. And then the rest of them were still completely 50-50, not sure what to do. And, and they were, um, you know, I, I have long thought that perhaps the, the handling of the coronavirus, which led to, uh, you know, an economic crisis that the country's now facing, would be the kind of thing that would really take a lot of these Republican voters uh, off the fence and put them in the Democrats' camp. But it, it's funny, what, what is, seems to be troubling them the most is actually the racial crisis that the country is facing. Um, they, they sort of view the coronavirus and 
the attending economic crisis is not quite Trump's fault. You know, it's something that happened in lots of other countries. They don't think he handled it well, but they don't necessarily think it's 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 a it's an economic crisis of Trump's making, and so they they tend to give him more of a pass on that. But they really view him as excel as exacerbating uh, the racial tensions in the country, and and are actively. I mean, they were very angry, especially in this last group, about um, the way that he is he's handled this and and not stood up more um, for sort of you know spoken words about the importance of of racial justice. Um, and, and just seeing him as, because it, people have always felt like he's divisive. That's something that comes up all the time, especially among women. Um, but now where his divisiveness is having just like very specific consequences and people can see how damaging it is um, in action, that was the thing that was turning people off the most. That's really interesting, Sarah. You know, the, I think that there is the drip, drip, drip of Trump in, in different regards, and, and now it's there's a body count associated with it. It's not just what will he tweet next, um, what will he incite next. But I don't know if you're, what you're describing is perhaps specifically attributed to his unprecedented use or misuse of the military in attempting to confront peaceful protesters. Is it tied to that specifically? You know, I think what it is, so this is, and this is something I've heard even, even years ago, people were saying this. I think one of the things that people don't like about Donald Trump is that he's erratic. You hear that word a lot, erratic, and that they don't necessarily trust him to be a voice of calm during a crisis. And so when you have like what we've had over the last couple of weeks, where what I think the average sort of viewer of the news looks at and just sees chaos um, and they see, you know, this incredibly over-militaristic approach. Uh, they see what, what is, uh, in the case of George Floyd, an obvious killing of a man um, who was not resisting arrest. Uh, and I think, it's, I think they just kind of wrap it all together, and then they see how Trump responds, which is, of course, just to, to take the fire that's already raging and pour gasoline on it. And it's really it's really all of it together that they just see this guy's not fit to handle these types of moments in our, in this country. It is a very different thing. And I, I heard this a lot early on, you know, they always, nobody thought he was, you know, of great character, but, but, you know, the economy was good. And so when you'd ask people like, well, how do you think the country's doing? They would kind of split it into two buckets. They would feel like the country was too divided and things didn't really feel good in the country and everybody was angry. But then they would say, but on the, you know, economic side, everybody's working and things are going fine and look, nothing terrible is happening. Um, and I think that part of what's, what's happened in the last, um, you know, three months is that when, when Trump is put to the test, when the country is really tested, whether it's by the virus, by the economic crisis, or whether it's by um, the racial tensions, he's just, he just can't rise to the occasion. And that's what people see. Sarah, the point that you mentioned about the bucket of eligible voters or voters up for grabs, as you put it, do you really think that even in these extreme times uh, with the COVID crisis and the botched response to it, that um, if the nominee was not uh, Biden, uh, there would be uh, a much smaller pool of those voters up for, you know, up for grabs? 
You know, it's hard to assess exactly what the percentage of people that I think are, are up for grabs now versus what they would be if it was Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. Um, and then, you know, sort of adding in the hypothetical of living in this exact same environment where things are, are not going well in the country. Um, I will say that when I was testing during the Democratic primaries, um, you know, when I was talking to a lot of the, the these Trump skeptical voters and I was asking them about the individual candidates, Biden always performed the best. And Elizabeth Warren uh, and Bernie Sanders tended to perform the least uh, well with these voters. Um, because I think for for the, the kind of, especially sort of the, I would, I would call them kind of college educated white suburban voters. A lot of them are McCain Romney voters. Uh, and I think, I think those are the people who are, are concerned that the left is going too far left. Um, but, but it's hard to say, I mean, they also really, really dislike Donald Trump. Um, but so, so it, it's hard to say like where their heads would be in this moment. I'd, I'd be speculating. Um, but, but I do know that, that Joe Biden was always much more palatable to this group of voters um, than some of the, the more progressive candidates. One of the groups that you founded um, that is fiercely dedicated to preserving the rule of law, um, Republicans for the rule of law, is really relevant today because you have an executive branch with Donald Trump that is seeking to neuter the accountability of the congressional branch. And there will be a Supreme Court case uh, decided in the near future that determines whether or not Congress's longstanding subpoena power is still intact. Um, and the question here is for the judiciary and the responsibility of an independent judiciary under the current circumstances, but into a next administration to ensure that it is consistently heeding the rule of law. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you specifically about this situation at the Supreme Court and how you would react either way. You know, so if Justice Roberts and perhaps Justice Gorsuch and others rule in favor of Congress and its historical right to, to subpoena, um, then how you would react, but how you would react if the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, very much deviating with precedent in, in our founding history says, no, Congress uh, can't have these documents. And, um, and I just wonder what your reaction will be in both of those situations. Well, I would be shocked if the latter happened. I mean, I think uh, clearly the, the it, it, it should fall that Congress does have subpoena power that and it always has. And so um, I, I have found it uh, sort of unconscionable the way that the Trump administration has consistently maneuvered and argued to try to avoid uh, the normal checks and balances of oversight. Uh, but I, I got to tell you, you know, regardless of what the Supreme Court decides, one of the, the big failures of the Trump era has been the unwillingness of Congress itself to conduct that oversight, specifically the Republicans, um, who have essentially turned a blind eye to so much of the corruption. Um, you know, when, when all this is said and done, 
my my biggest disappointments aren't really in in Trump because I never believed anything good about Trump to begin with. Um, I, I, he's always been who he is, and he is corrupt at his core and uh, self interested at his core. But I told people early on in the Trump presidency, you know, it's going to be okay. We've got this, you know, our, our system of checks and balances will hold. There are guardrails and Republicans will do the right thing. Congressional Republicans will do the right thing. They will rein him in. They will have a leash on him. And that has absolutely not turned out to be the case. Um, the extent to which congressional Republicans have totally advocated their responsibility um, whether it's uh, the national emergency declaration that all of my favorite constitutional conservatives like Ben Sass just went along with, um, whether it's the impeachment hearings where, uh, you know, Mitt Romney laid it out very clearly. There's just no doubt. This was, this was, not, this was not a question uh, of whether or not he behaved corruptly. Of course he had. Of course it was a quid pro quo. Uh, and, and, um, and the way that, that Republicans just decided not to uh, not to hold him accountable for that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's Sarah, one, how, it's one, sorry, how widespread do you think the accountability will be on the part of the voters? And the voters are perceptive and understand that the Sasses and, and of course the McConnells um, fail to provide any, any decent oversight um, and, and often were Complicit. Uh, I, I'm just wondering, you know, when it comes to Senate races like those in, in South Carolina and, and Nebraska, uh, so Lindsey Graham and Ben Sass, I mean, how, how much do you think Republicans for the rule of law and, and Republicans against Trump are going to show up in a way that is resounding? Uh, well, I think there's a difference between resounding and decisive. Um, so, so I think that uh, right-leaning independents and uh, disaffected Republicans who are not on board with Trumpism, um, I think they will be the difference maker in this election. And I think that they are going to, uh, they're going to join the coalition of what is probably going to be massive turnout among Democrats. Uh, and I think you're just going to see a lot of lifelong Republican voters who vote for a Democrat, maybe for the first time in their lives in order to get rid of Donald Trump. And the fact is, Trump does have a pretty significant hold on the party. There's no doubt about it. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't characterize it like all of these Republicans are just going to rise up against him. But the margins, at the margins, when Trump is now at 85% approval within the Republican Party, you know, if there's 15% of identified Republicans coupled with all of the Republicans who have left, which is who we hear from all the time, who've now gone, to be, gone on to um, become independents, those are the people who will, I think, deliver massive defeats in places like Michigan, in Pennsylvania, um, in Arizona, potentially in North Carolina. And the thing is, when they talk about those senators, I think, you know, Trump's going to take a lot of these senators down with him. Um, I think, you know, Martha McSally is in huge trouble in Arizona. That's partly due to her own uh, her own making. Um, you know, I think that people like Ben Sass and Lindsey Graham are probably fine. Uh, maybe. I mean, but Lindsey Graham is actually going to have a bit of a fight on his hands. Sass well, why, why is that? Why do you think that that uh, Nebraska, you know, it wasn't so long ago that Bob Kerry was serving there? Um, you know, why do you think that in a, a wave election, South Carolina and Nebraska are still not in reach uh, for a relatively moderate and very well respected and, and you know, decent uh, Democratic presidential nominee at the top of the ticket. And in the case of, of South Carolina, I can't speak to Nebraska, 
Jamie Harrison, you are mentioning that Democrats may have an opportunity there, but but in, in a state like Nebraska, why do you think that there can't, uh, there, there won't be, um, I guess the difference between decisive and resounding? Um, it's clear that, that Ernst is vulnerable in Iowa. Um, if, if there was an, an, an election in Missouri, that representative, you know, if, if uh, the, McCaskill had been up this cycle, you know, she might be able to hold on. How far can, can the uh, normalizing extend into um, the, the red states, the so-called red states? Yeah, well, like I said, I think um, I think there's a big difference. So in Nebraska, uh, Ben Sass, I don't think, has a particularly compelling Democratic challenger. Um, and so I, I just, I don't, I, I don't see Nebraska as being right. on the table. That being said, uh, I think you've named a couple of them. I mean, uh, you know, Susan Collins, Corey Gardner, um, Joni Ernst, uh, Tom Tillis, um, you know, and, and a few others are vulnerable. And I think in a wave of election, they could go down. I think Lindsey Grant with South Carolina, I, I'm, I'm still pretty skeptical that South Carolina is going to go for a Democrat. That being said, uh, I think Lindsey Graham's going to have to spend more money than he spent to protect his seat, especially for somebody who, you know, is such a high profile uh, ally of the, of the president. Um, and, you know, then there's always Mitch McConnell. Um, and and I, he's another one that I think is very unlikely to be unseated by challenger Amy McGrath. That being said, the polling is actually somewhat tight. Um, and, and, uh, and I think there's a bunch of these seats. I mean, it looks like Cory Gardner, uh, Susan Collins, um, uh, I'm blanking on uh, Martha McStally, like they, those get, they are looking deeply in peril. And so the chances of the Democrats taking over power in the Senate is not out of reach at all. Last question I want to ask you, Sarah, is about polling and about complacency, because I know there are two wholly different phenomena, but I, but I, the, the phenomena that we're experiencing again it is resembling somewhat what we experienced in, in 2016 with this idea that Donald Trump is this buffoonish character. He's, he's from TV. He's not politics. It can't be real. Lo and behold, he's elected president. But um, if you were the Biden campaign or allies of his like yourself, how, how do you work really decisively to ensure that there is no complacency because even though they weren't as extreme, there were definitely states that some of Clinton's advisors said were contestable and they ended up losing those and losing the states that they needed in order to win the electoral college. So if you're, if you're making this calculation that, you know, last summer around this time there, there were, you know, there was the same kind of um, incredulousness about uh, about Trump and the prospects for him to win. And, and I'm wondering how you deal with that, that complacency that the polling of the summer creates this impression that it's that it's uh, Biden's to win, not his to lose. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question and an important point. Um, you know, look, I say that anybody who will listen, the Democrats should dance like nobody's watching and run like they're 10 points behind every day, all the time. And I, I do think that there is an actual psychological effect on Democrats this time around where they understand uh, what happened last time. Like, it's not it's not like 2016, where everybody's like, well, we got it in the bag. And, 
you know, we can just cruise to victory and they're popping champagne, you know, the, the morning of election before they've won. I don't think that psychology is there anymore um, at all. I think, I think if anything, it's going the other way where they do have the, the, the sense of like, this went sideways on us last time. We didn't see it coming. Don't trust the polls. Don't, don't, nobody get complacent uh, and still focus on turning out every vote. Now, but one thing I will say that I think is a real potential disconnect between the polling and ultimately turnout is we don't know where we're going to be with the coronavirus and with people's willingness to sort of go to polling places. And that's why this conversation around absentee voting, vote by mail, early voting, all of that stuff is actually really important because uh, we're heading into an election that's going to look different than most other elections we've had before. We may very well not know who won on election night because there's going to be so much voting of absentee ballots um, way more than normal. And, you know, and lots of older people who volunteer at polling places uh, won't be won't be volunteering because they're they potentially are the most at risk for coronavirus. And so um, I think that it's just so much depends on turnout, right? These polls are only so good, only as good as, as, as people actually going out and doing what they say they're going to do and when they, when they take a poll. And so I think that's, that's a big question is, is turnout going to be impacted by coronavirus and, and how might that look? And in Wisconsin and Georgia so far, it seems that people are willing to put their lives on the line to ensure that Donald Trump is defeated. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there's sort of this element of, again, just just to speak to the uh, sort of against why I think complacency is big of a problem. It's just, it looks like people are kind of will, willing to crawl over broken glass this time to vote. Um, and even in the Democratic uh, primaries, there was these sort of massive turnout numbers. Um, now, that being said, the enthusiasm on the Republican side is going to be uh, potentially high too. You know, for when, when people, the people, for the people who are all in on Trump, those people are very enthusiastic about going out and voting for Trump again. And those people were absolutely undercounted and underrepresented uh, in all of the polling that was done. Um, and so- are, are, we, are we undercounting then if we make the assumption or presumption that that constitutes no more than 30% of the electorate? Where, where do you stand as a final question, Sarah, based on the focus groups you've done and whatever statistical evidence is available, where do you stand on that question? Do you think that that is, is a hell bent for Trump, always Trump? Is, does that tip over beyond 30%? You know, I mean, I'm not sure what actual percentage is, but I think 32 to 35% is probably accurate in terms of the enthusiasm, you know, people who, people who want to go to Trump rallies and people who are, or people, it's not even just that they're so pro-Trump, it's how, you know, so much of what we do is ruled by kind of a negative polarity or negative partisanship. Right. where they just see Trump as the thing standing between them and the leftist socialist nightmare that they uh, have in their heads. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I, I'm not quite, quite sure. I do think, though, that everything that's been happening in an economy that's in turmoil and a country that's in turmoil, it does quite a bit to diminish enthusiasm around Trump. I mean, a lot of what I see from the voters that I talk to who were Trump voters is that, look, they, they wanted a businessman. They wanted somebody to come shake things up. But this is not what they had in mind. And so they're very sort of disappointed in, in the Trump era. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I am, I think that one of the, I, it's, again, tough to speculate and one should be careful about doing so. But I, I think if I had to, and, and also I would just note, there's always time for these things to turn around. We still have 
uh, I think 19 weekends until uh, <laughs> until the election and who knows what can happen. I mean, who knew this is where we were going to be three months ago. So who knows where we'll be in three months. Um, but it, it does seem to me doing the focus groups and watching the numbers sort of peel away Trump's disapproval ticking up, which has been, you know, incredibly steady through the entirety of his administration to see the numbers really starting to move. Um, coupled with what I see in the focus groups, I, I certainly get the sense um, that, that the shine is off Donald Trump right. and that and there's a lot again, of people it, rethinking. And then again, it doesn't matter if it's 32% nationally, if it's 40% in Pennsylvania or Michigan right. or, or Wisconsin. Um, so anyway, Sarah, representing Republicans for the rule of law and Republican voters against Trump, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me.